Do you have any questions? Is the Buddha present or gone or present and gone? The Buddha is neither present nor gone. The Buddha is, it's the Buddha wisdom. Now, if you want to speak about the historical Buddha, the Buddha was a human being like all of us. And conventionally speaking, his body disappeared. Mm -hmm. But isn't the Buddha right here with us? Because we hear his voice across these millennia. We hear the voice of the Buddha. Otherwise, how would, how would we be able to live this monastic life without having his instructions? How would we know how to wear our robes, how to conduct ourselves, how to understand the Dhamma, how to meditate without hearing the voice of the Buddha across millennia? And he didn't have any devices, no digital, nothing. It's a miracle. But there is no rational answer to this. It's a process of seeing and hearing and knowing and understanding. There's always that awakened mind. And the Buddha, as a being, tapped into it fully and fully awakened in the supreme way and showed us that we can do this. It's not a historical, it's not bound by time. But your question is time-bound. And the Buddha is timeless, boundaryless. Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering, does a untrue person recognize a true person? And then also, does a untrue person understand a true person? The Buddha did specifically say in the sutta that they did not. We're deluded and we read the Buddha's instructions or teachings and we want that truth. So in this case, in the sutta, the Buddha was talking about beings that give themselves over to unwholesomeness. So they have wrong view, wrong action, wrong speech, wrong life. All, everything is on the wrong path. But once there's a little bit of Dhamma awakened within us, or mm. we, we have shame, we have moral shame, and we see our delusion a little bit, or we see the bad results of our life, and we want to be true, then we follow a true person. Some true persons that we think are true are not really true. What's important is to recognize that there is a way of awakening and there is a way of delusion and they don't cross. So if you follow the way of awakening, you have to follow it completely, not half-heartedly. Otherwise, you fall into untruth. And a little bit of untruth can go a very wrong way. I have. Where I have fear, I can, I can sense anxiety. And I sort of know, well, off to the right, if I looked, would be a swampy place of dread. And you talked about being aware. 
Is it enough just to stand there and be aware of that anxiety or should I attempt to turn to my right and walk into the swamp? No, no, don't go into the swamp. You know, with awareness of the anxiety, wouldn't it be the job of the true warrior or the, the Dhamma practitioner to bring forth in the mind the inclination towards purification so we would not abide in unwholesomeness and we would try not to abide in fear. But if you know the fear, then you know that it's empty. It's just a mind moment. It's a sankara. It arises and ceases. And to whom does it belong? Whose fear is it? Is there anyone there who's afraid? No. So we undermine the fear by knowing it for what it really is. And this is the whole gist of our liberation, is to look with eyes that are full of discernment at the fear so that we're no longer afraid of it. Because there's no one there to be afraid. And the irony is very telling when we start to look more closely. And even in the very first insight, when we sit down with the mind aware of objects arising and ceasing within it, we already see mentality. The, the mental awareness is knowing the objects within awareness. But they're not the same. The knowledge of what we're seeing, we are not those objects that arise and cease, but we are seeing them for what they truly are. Are they permanent or impermanent? Are they suffering or are they not suffering? Is there a self there that is afraid or is it empty of any self? These are the things we have to inquire when the mind is seeing. And with the very first insight, we can begin to see that we see objects and we know them to arise and see. So immediately we can know impermanence. But we may not know it very well. And then we continue to know it better and deeper as we practice. And the insights unfold on the basis of that very first pure knowing moment. So we get strength to go further and to leave the fear behind. It's a, one moment of insight like that is already a strength of freedom. We're freeing the mind the tiniest bit from a predicament that we've been locked in for our whole life or lifetimes. Now we begin to find a path that leads us out of this swamp forever. It sounds like I can start with, um, well, Aya says you're almost certainly not real. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Four Noble Truths, suffering, and what is the origin of it? Are we seeing correctly? Then we see the suffering. Who's suffering? And then that's 
the moment of the non-suffering, the ending of suffering, a cessation moment is the third noble truth. And then we practice the Eightfold Noble Path because we need all eight limbs. We need to continue the sila samadhi panya development. We can't do it through these clever or insightful or discerning mind moments. We have to have our whole samadhi land has to, our whole act has to be cleaned up. Any other questions? My mind got curious about, you said impermanent and then impersonal and then imperfect. I was wondering if you could elaborate on the imperfect quality. What is the only perfection that we can realize in this human realm? What do you think it might be? Everything in the world is imperfect, everything. The world itself is imperfect as we've seen. It can be spoiled. It can be damaged. And it has a life. It has a, a lifespan, this earth. Even the stars, they have lifespans. Stars are born and stars die. And the earth, too, at some point will disappear. There's nothing in this conditioned world that is perfect except the unconditioned, which is Nibbana itself. So everything else is imperfect. Every mind moment is therefore imperfect. We can't find any perfection in the world. So it helps us to see the true characteristics, the true qualities of whatever arises in consciousness. This helps us to realize the qualitative truth about all these phenomena that we might take refuge in. The things that we own, the food that we eat, the bodies that we live in, we take refuge in these things, but they're, they're impermanent, they're imperfect because they arise and cease, and they're empty, they're impersonal. There's no one that lives in this body even though there is a construct, a mental construct, very powerful one of a self. But if we meditate deeply and study this body-mind process conglomerate, you won't find any solid thing in there that you can call a self. But don't take my word for it. You must find it out on your own. And even if you were to find it, it wouldn't last. So how could it be a self? Because the whole thing disappears. So it's not, it's not permanent. You can't control it. So it's not something you own. It's empty because it disappears. And it brings suffering when we lose it. Therefore, it's imperfect. Whatever we lose is imperfect. It brings suffering. So that's one way we can look at it. And it's a way of helping tease the mind away from clinging 
to these phenomena that arise in consciousness. People go on, on vacation. Lots of people are traveling now, going here, going there. Everyone's going somewhere. And then they come back and think about where they went. But what does it all mean? I was talking to a close relative who said to me, oh, we went here, we went there. And, and then he stopped and said, oh, it feels like a, a dream. Because it is, it's a dream. We're just dreaming. We want to wake up. We don't want to dream. The past is dead. We only have this moment. And then it disappears. We have another moment. No guarantee how many moments we have left to wake up in. And the Buddha says, this is urgent work. He's not kidding us. It's urgent. So to wake up is quintessential, but let's at least know that we're asleep and know that there is a waking up that's possible. That's already a lot of mileage. Many people walk around asleep and don't know that. And not to judge, because our level of what we think is not being asleep might be half asleep. We don't know. Do you know the quality of spiritual friendship is really how to forgive our inability to be the perfect friend to ourselves and just wake up moment by moment. And in that waking up, we become better and better friend to ourselves. Ultimately, the Buddha is our best friend. I always think of the Buddha as my best friend, but I want to be like the Buddha. That's why I try to dress up like the Buddha. <laughs> I want to live like the Buddha. I want to be like the Buddha. But it's not just the outward appearance. The inside has to be like the Buddha. That's much harder to do. And that's why we have spiritual companions to help us see our weak spots and all our, our bumps and pimples and everything else because we can't see them ourselves we're too blind we're too deluded or it's too painful to look but if we live with sangha if we live with spiritual friends and good community then other people become mirrors for us and they help us to see what we can't see on our own it's like when you drive your car you have mirrors and electric cars have lots more mirrors to help you see better, to help navigate. Because if we did it, we can't do it on our own. The Buddha did it on his own. So special he was, so advanced. But we're not like that. We need mirrors. And to be grateful for the feedback we get. And to forgive ourselves and try with that advice to lean and incline the mind more and more towards that liberating quality where we see all things with satipanya, especially 
as a mindfulness and a wisdom that knows the three characteristics of all phenomena that appear in consciousness so we don't get hoodwinked by any of it. The Buddha's friendship will never fail us. It's always available. It's always the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But we are so disabled that we have trouble swallowing the truth totally. And I guess what we learn as we train the mind, as we train in sila, in virtue, growing more and more harmless day by day if we can, keeping the precepts as if our life depended on it, because it does. Then little by little, we learn how to swallow the whole truth and nothing but the truth, because that's the only thing to really nourish us with, the only real nurturing we can get. You might have the best physical diet in the world, and everyone's got a bit different opinion about what that is. But the only true diet is this true discernment. Discernment and unconditional compassion give us the whole truth. And that will save us. It's the only thing that will save us. It's the best nourishment we could possibly have. It's free. No one can sell it to you. If someone's trying to sell you the truth, it's a lie. It's false. Never believe that. There are people that teach the Dhamma with a price tag. I find it difficult to see that. But that's the world. The world always has a price tag on it. So if it has a price tag on it, it's been corrupted or it's coming with an impure vehicle. So we have to be discerning which truth we sign up for. I feel so grateful. Gratitude is a wonderful way to follow the path through all our dukkhas, is always to bring the mind to that humble stance of being grateful for this breath, for this moment of knowing, being aware, and being blessed by that awareness, for one moment of virtue, and one moment of sila samadhi panya, that alone is a gift. And then in that moment of gratitude, we can forgive everything else, no matter how bad it is, whatever it might be, life, relationship, studies, work, economic situation, whatever predicament you find yourself in, there's always some gratitude that we can pull out of it because the Buddha is our best friend. And if the Buddha is our best friend, we can be a spiritual friend to someone too because we have that much understanding. How about walking meditation? The Buddha taught four postures as an example, and walking meditation is, is a posture. So 
basically the practice happens in every posture. Whichever posture you're in, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, crouching, if you're standing on your tiptoes or reaching in an awkward position, falling, try to bring mindfulness to the present moment. I remember when I fell on the ice a few years back and I, I really hurt my head. And while I was falling, I thought, uh-oh, I knew this was going to be trouble. And I was realizing that I had made a bad decision to walk on the ice and the law of causation was about to take effect. So just reflecting on the Buddha's teaching at every moment and being aware of the body, being aware of what you're doing and how you're receiving what life is bringing. Even if you're doing nothing and life brings something like a terrible fall, or a, a mean word from someone, how can you forgive that present moment? What lovely mind state can you bring to whatever is happening? It's like putting on your best dress, never mind the body, because we always wear the robe. We're wearing the best possible dress that we can wear, and so we bring that kind of attitude to every moment. That's the meaning of the robe is to live with the possibility of an awake moment, no matter what comes, because we're wearing the robe of the Buddha all the time. So walking meditation is just another posture. It doesn't mean time out. You start thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or who you're going to go shopping with all of that do you know most people i think they go to thinking and doing because the mind is just following restlessness or it's following greed or it's following ill will or it's following delusion and as long as we follow those kind of qualities we're going to end up in a dead end and have to repeat the misdirection over and over again because we just get lost in it so if we can direct the mind well for one moment, one second, it'll help us get out of the ditch. It will. It'll help us climb back out into a free moment where we can stand up for the truth and open the heart more to receive the truth. That will be the fulfillment of the project day by day, little by little, step by step. So walk with mindfulness. Walk with the Buddha in front of you or as your companion. Then you'll be a spiritual friend to yourself and to the world. Let's sit together a little bit.